Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. Welcome to the latest PR Moment Podcast with me, Ben Smith. And on the show today, we've got the founder of the Academy, Mitch Kay. This is latest in a new um, format of the PMO podcast where we're going to be talking to PR leaders um, and in hindsight, really, about what they what they know now, but they wish they'd known when they started out on their careers. Um, for those of you that don't know, Mitch is, as I say, um, co-founder of the Academy, which he started with Dan Glover in 2014. Previously, he was the founder and CEO at Mischief. The Academy is a consumer PR shop in London. It has a fee income of about £6 million, 55 employees, and clients include Amazon, Morrisons, and Disney. If you haven't taken a look already, do check out the Creative Moment Awards site, I should say. Um, the entry deadline is coming up in a couple of weeks. It's on Friday, the 30th of June. Uh, and I should say thanks so much to our PR Moment podcast sponsors, the PRCA. Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure, Mitch. Um, go on, let's get straight to it. What is your your first in hindsight lesson for us today? Well, I gave this a lot of thought, Ben, because you asked me to, but also because I realised in preparing for today that I've been working for 25 years, which is very depressing. I know I look much younger, uh, but I have been working for 25 years. So it's an interesting milestone to reflect, I think, 25 years and also... I'm in a reflective mood because I've recently been doing some work with my old school in Bournemouth. And it's kind of been like a mentoring role where I've been helping people to look at some lessons that I've learned along the way and some things to keep in mind. And so I guess the two things together have put me in the, per well, hopefully you'll be the judge, but hopefully the perfect space to share a couple of thoughts today. Well, don't go too deep, Mitch. Don't go I too promise deep. I won't. Give us, give us your first one. It's a three hour limit. Yeah. Like we said. <laughs> cool. So the first one, I think, so all, all three are things that I think I've made mistakes in, in the last 25 years. And therefore, I guess they're things which I wish with hindsight, I knew and would pass on to anyone maybe coming into the industry. That's how I've tried to filter my thinking. So the first one is around ego. And everyone has an ego. Some people have a monster ego, which is out of control. Other people have a much smaller, more controllable ego, but I guess everyone has an ego of some sort. And when I look back at my time so far, my first 25 years, um, I think some of my worst decisions have been ego-led and made for probably the wrong reasons, which are ego. Um, and that can be, it can be accepting a job when you're approached about a job relatively early on in your career and the word headhunted get used gets used and you suddenly think wow i've been i've been headhunting for a job that's a big deal um, i'm wanted for this role they they they've put me at the top of their list i'm going to accept this role because they want me and even the language of the word headhunted um which is absurd if you think about probably if you've got only a handful of years of experience um and i was headhunted once early on and I took the job and I was so flattered that I didn't bother to do my due diligence and look into the role and look into the context of the company and as a result probably within a week 
of joining, I knew it was a mistake. So that would be a very good example, a very tangible example of ego. Um, but I think more than that... As and a general, by the way, when, when the job doesn't work out, the headhunter doesn't give a monkey to the... There's, there's no, no support no. from the headhunter. They've got, they've got their commission and they're they're gone. Like, the sunset to headhunt someone else. They're, they're so, like, could you just stay there for another three months so I get all of my commission? And then, um, but yeah, go right. on. And by the way, the headhunter who sees that you were actually rubbish at your job never headhunts you again, so you burn that bridge too. Yeah. Um, but I think more generally, ego is probably, there's a point in your career where I, I guess you get into a job and you start seeing some early success and you maybe get promoted a couple of times, maybe in short succession. And there's definitely a moment where lots of us, certainly me back then, would start to believe our own hype. So you start to think, okay, I'm 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 doing pretty well here. People keep telling me good things. Promotions verify that. Pay rises verify that. You know, I'm in a good place and I'm on a bit of a roll here. And I think very quickly, if your ego isn't in control, you can start to believe your own hype and you can start to believe you get ahead of yourself. And it's a bit of a cliche, but you set yourselves up for a fall. And at some point that fall will come. It certainly came for me. And it's a pretty miserable experience when your ego is out of control and then you fall badly. And when you fall badly, it can really rock you and throw you because you don't really have the foundations to support that journey. So I think not getting ahead of yourself, not believing your own hype, understanding that every level you go to, you need to prove yourself all over again, understanding that you're in a team, you're part of a team, you're part of an agency, you're one person, you're not, nothing ever rides on you, nothing ever depends on you. And actually, the flip of that is that when you leave a job, any job, whether you're the founder of Mischief after we sold Mischief and we spent two years post-sale and then I moved on from, from being the founder of an agency or anywhere else along the, along the way to that, to that process, you very quickly realize in this game that the world continues to turn, no, no, nothing falls apart, and that even when a founder leaves, it, often things continue to grow and actually sometimes get even better. So whether you believe that everything revolves around you or not, it doesn't. And you see that very quickly when you leave. And just um, thinking about ego for a moment, how do you, what are the warning signs, Mitch, when your ego is getting a little bit ahead of yourself? When do you, what, what are those triggers? Do you mean when you're managing someone or, or for your own ego? For your own self? ego. Uh, I think you get affronted very regularly and very easily. Okay. Um, I think you get indignant when information isn't shared with you early. Um, I think you get irritated. You start looking across the line to your left and your right and see what other people are doing. And you get you start to be more focused on yourself in relation to other people than you do yourself versus yourself. At the end of the day, again, it's a big cliche, but you 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 are you are in a pool of one in your career. So we've all had times where we've been we've had other people at our level who are maybe, you know, vying for a promotion and and, and maybe someone gets it before you or you get it before someone else. But Ultimately, I think on the way up, it's sometimes really difficult to not be distracted by that because it's human nature. And I certainly was guilty of doing that. What you realize maybe when you get a bit older and you get a bit further in is that you are in a pool of one and you just you do you and you focus on your journey. And really, whether other people get promoted sooner, later is so irrelevant. 
Um, but but you get distracted on your own journey because you're too bothered about what's going on around you. And, and my next question was going to be about how, how what steps you take to control your ego or improve your ego. But that's basically what you mean, is it? Think about think about it's become a slight cliche, but think about your journey and and what you can 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 contribute and what you want out of it all. Yeah, I mean, the only step I took was to take no steps at all until I fell badly. I hit a point in my career where. I stopped winning pitches. So I was uh, I was uh, an associate director at the time. And I had a period of time where I won lots of pitches in a, in a short spell. When and was I this? Thought, back, back in the Shine days, was it? Was that it where was. Right. Yeah, it was when I'd gone back to Shine. So I'd been at Shine earlier on. And I'd gone back to Shine. First six months, I won so many pitches. And I, I felt like I, all I had to do was turn up and I'd win a pitch. So I thought you could rely on charm and do everything last minute and just get away with it. And I did get away with it for a period of time until I stopped getting away with it. And then I made loads of mistakes and then I couldn't win a pitch. And then suddenly you, you can't buy uh, any success. You can't, there's nothing you can do. And your confidence falls away very quickly. Because what you realize when you're ego led is that your confidence isn't real confidence. It's it's bravado and it's not, there's no substance to it. So you fall away really quickly and you fall badly. And my only way of learning it was to fall badly. And it was pretty hideous. And I was very grateful that I had an incredible boss, Rachel Bell, at the time. And I had some brilliant people around me who gave me the patience and the space and sometimes the tough love to see where I was going and to pick me back up again. So how do you avoid that? Well, I guess you listen to your brilliant With Hindsight series, all of them. But equally, I think find a mentor or have a, have a relationship with your line manager or your boss where you can have some really straight talking, honest conversations. Seek honest feedback. Uh, don't be tickled under the chin and be paid platitudes, but actually ask, what can I do better? Where am I going wrong? How can I improve? And really seek it yourself. But but equally, ask yourself some really uncomfortable questions, which is, am I essential to this organization? Or if I left tomorrow, would someone else come in and do exactly the same job? More often than not, the answer is the second one. And if someone tells you they've just been headhunted, then, then you know that they might be having some some of these problems. We'll see. Um, well, tell them, tell them congratulations, but maybe look into the job a bit more. <laughs> um, talk to me about your second in hindsight lesson, Mitch. So the second one, I think, it, actually, the second one is probably an antidote to the first one. So the word impact, and 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 my the 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 lesson, the realization is, whatever level you're at whether in your, you're in your first job, whether you're running an agency or anything in between, ask yourself at any point, what impact am I having? Now, some people, it would suit some people to do that every single day. Now, that's a bit much and maybe a bit too intense, but certainly once a week, I always say to people, get to the end of a week and find a moment or do it on a Monday morning. Find a moment where you ask yourself an uncomfortable question, what impact did I have in the past week? What, what are we defining as impact here, Mitch? Well, it kind of depends what your job is. So for me now as an agency leader, my impact, I guess, would be growth. How have I improved my agency in the past week? Now, that could be financially. Where are our numbers? What have I done to grow the numbers? It could be our culture. It could be our people. It could be our clients. It could be just an issue that we're having. What have I done in the past week to begin to overcome that issue? Um, it could just be a to-do list. Have I is my to do list now looking better or worse than it was a week ago? But what have I done in the last week? What impact have I had? 
if you are well, it's interesting when you say impact because it's not uh, the reason because actually to-do list is you can get you can go on various tangents on to-do list can't you and it all you know all these things need to be done but impact's an interesting choice of word it's a little bit more than you know getting your daily tasks done and dusted it's about yeah. right what actual difference have i made that is going to affect um things in a in a in a broader in a broader light yeah, I think it's exactly that. And and the thing, the, the reason I choose impact intentionally is because you don't have an impact managing your emails in your inbox. I mean, you might, but it's unlikely. So being busy, being busy and pushing paper around and managing an inbox, rarely is there an impact or enough of an impact in that. The impact normally comes when you shut your email down and you get into something which is actually going to make a difference. So do you, do you often uh, do that? Do you, because oddly enough, years ago, it's, but it's, this is, um, reminded me of a chat I, I had with Chadlington years ago, and he he basically said replying to emails he does not classify as work, which um, you know we I don't want to have a debate about that, but you see where he's going with that. It's not it's different. It's a very very different type of work to impactful work in a sense, isn't it? Well, first of all, if you're comparing any conversation you have with me to Lord Chadlington, then I'm going to take that and run. So thank you. I'm going to absolutely. I'm sure you weren't doing that, but I'm going to take that one anyway. Um, I think I think he's right. I think. 90% of emails are about managing ongoing situations or handling or fielding or acknowledging or informing, but they're rarely about achieving impact. And it's something I, I could be better at. It's something I struggle with because we all, I think, get sucked into the day-to-day. -day, but what are the things that are going to really make a difference this week? Now, that could be if you are, you know, if you're more junior, it could be that piece of coverage that would unlock something. It could be... Uh, if you're working on an event, it could be finding the venue and booking it. It could be talent related. It could be it, it's anything that probably isn't easy to achieve. That isn't just a cursory nod well, at an email, but actually requires you to sit down, put some time and thought and engage your brain and really go uh, to that uncomfortable place. Yeah. And the great danger is, and I do this all the time, is that you you get all the easier stuff done and dusted to then have that moment of clarity where you can go and do the slightly deeper thinking impactful work and yeah. you never actually get to do that because something else crops up and that that is a welcome to my world moment when i when i think ben must do better do you know what i mean 100 percent. and i've got two daughters um 12 and 11 years old and my advice to my 12 year old daughter who's obviously into secondary school now last week my advice to her was take your least favorite homework and do it first now that's a piece of advice that you could apply to any job or any to-do list in the world but actually for her it was about saying, right, you hate geography. Okay, do your geography homework first. Like, attack it and face it down and give yourself the maximum window because the alternative to that, the opposite of that, is you you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. You kid yourself that you've got more time than you have. You've only got one bit of homework left on a Sunday night for a Monday morning. It's geography. The problem with geography is it takes you about eight hours to do it and you're up all night. So, it, and, and actually so many of us do that as kids. And then we go into the working world and we continue those habits in the working world. So if we all did our least favorite, most uncomfortable job first in our in our roles, we'd probably be all better off. And also, it's not just a, the uncomfortable ones. It's the because the email management, that's the, quite often they're, they're timely things, aren't they? Whereas the sometimes the more important task isn't isn't always on a deadline. But if it never gets done, my, my goodness, it ends up being on a deadline. Yeah, and you're talking about legacy a bit as well. Is that what you were you were thinking around that with your when you were talking about impact? Yeah, so I did a I, I'm 
going to give Rachel Bell a second shout out. There's just too too many on one podcast, but yeah. there we go. Um, I'm 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 indebted to her for a training session that she once arranged that I was very enough very lucky to participate in, which was she set us a task of uh, writing. This sounds really dark and morbid, and, and it wasn't, but it was to write our own obituaries. So it was to it was to write the piece of write the words of how we want to be remembered and look at the roles we play in our lives. So one role would be an employee or an employer. One role would be a husband. One role would be a brother. One role would be a son, maybe a friend, maybe a nephew, maybe a neighbor, whatever roles we play in our lives. And to list all those roles out and to write our obituary through the lens of how we want to be remembered in each of those roles. Now, the idea being that you 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 go to you mentally go to the end of your life you write about how you want to be remembered and then you work backwards and what you realize is if you want to have a, a hope in hell of being remembered that way you're going to have to put a plan into place for each and to put a plan into place for each you're going to have to ask yourself what good looks like in each area so if you want to be remembered as an amazing brother or an amazing grandson or an amazing friend what does amazing look like in each of those roles and then you write a plan and then you work backwards and then you allocate those times to those to those each of those roles to, to give yourself a half a chance of not, you know, of one day being remembered that way. It's a very long winded way of saying you you think about how you want it to play out and then you work backwards. And but, but interesting that you do it for the different stakeholders so that you use a business term, which is a slightly unfortunate business term. But, yeah, that's an important element to it, I guess, isn't it? Because it's unlikely to be one solution for, for everybody in a sense. You've got to, You've got to tailor it. It has to be a life thing. Um, the danger of doing it just for work is that you will spend all your time delivering your work yeah. objective and you'll be remembered as someone who was very career focused, but didn't do a lot else outside of that, which yeah. no, no one has ever wanted to be remembered for. So you're doing it in context of your life, but it's a brilliant, brilliant, very uncomfortable, very, very um, taxing exercise, but a brilliant one because number one, you realize how many roles you play. Number two, you normally realize how many of them you neglect. Number three, you realize that you don't actually ever give thought to what good looks like in those areas. So you in your work every day, you'll 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 pitch and your or you'll propose something to a client and you'll set out KPIs. But in your in your non-work life, you rarely do that because most of us don't think that way. But if you're forced to look at the KPIs of being a good brother, a good husband, a good grandson, whatever it might be. It's a really uncomfortable process and then you have to stick to it and then you have to work work your life around making it possible. So I, I wish I'd learned that all those years ago. I'm very grateful to Rachel that I did that session, you know, down the line. When did but, you do it? Roughly how long ago? Maybe it was five or six years into my career. I could have done oh, it. Doing... Quite a while back. Yeah, quite a while back, but maybe actually it might have been later, but I would have loved to have done it on day one because. Right. But you don't, you haven't revisited it. No, all the time. No, I do. I do all the time. And I encourage other people to do it too, because it keeps you on track and it stops time running away. And it stops you in theory, it stops you having regrets about how you spend your time and about where you spend your time. But I think what it does, it's, it's, it's the ultimate focus on impact and it's the ultimate focus on legacy because it's literally how do you want to be remembered? And where do you, what was it? Is there some, it's a whole lot of books secret mitch books that i we, we we can we can delve into at some point or is this is this in your head or is it written down somewhere where, where, where was it it's in my head i write it down when i do the the session which is probably once a year 
Okay. Uh, and I so there is there is a record where you, so you get you out last year's notes and go oh yeah done all right yeah. on that didn't do so good on that you know that sort of thing. I'm definitely not sharing it. Not no. not going to happen. Uh, I don't think I'd ask you too much. It'd be, cool. be some things are too far. Um, what's your third lesson? Your third and final lesson, Mitch. Third and final lesson is timing. Okay. So a sense of timing and the importance that timing plays in life, but in careers as well. So um, give you an example. There was, there are always times when you work for an agency, whether it's shine back in the day, mischief back in the day, the Academy right now, or any other, the 4,000 agencies in London where or elsewhere or elsewhere, of course, global audience, um, there are timing is a really big deal. And there's always moments in those agencies where people leave like these things go in cycles. And sometimes when you're in those agencies and some of your friends leave or people at your level or other long serving people, I think the tendency is to go, well, maybe it's my time too. And certainly I did that once or twice in the past because you're, you're influenced by what's around you. I think the reality is um what I've learned with hindsight is those are the moments to stay. That's a, that, a, that's one example of a good moment to stay because if you stay, so what moment is that when other people are leaving and what, and what, how are you feeling when other people are leaving and it's tempting to be the next one along who leaves okay. because it's a cycle and it's kind of like a, it feels like an end of an era and a natural time. I think human nature goes, it's my time to go too. Um, the reality is it's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant time to stay because you stay it doesn't mean you stay forever, but you play the loyalty card and the loyalty card to the people you're working for at a time when lots of other people are leaving is very important and is hugely appreciated and speaks volumes and normally leads to some very good opportunities being thrown your way because you've stayed at a time it would be easy to leave. So that's one example of timing. I think the other one is um, lots of people leave jobs for lots of reasons, but probably one of the most common ones is they've lost their way. They've fallen out of love with the job. They've fallen out of love with the industry or maybe the agency or maybe wherever they're working. And they've disconnected slightly and they change jobs because it's like rolling the dice and shaking things up. Or maybe it's something in their life that's happened and it's easier to change a job than it's to change other things. Um, what I've realized with hindsight is leave a job when you're doing brilliantly in that job. Leave a job when you are, you're better off leaving a job a month after you've been promoted, when you're flying high, when your stock is high, when your confidence is high, when you're, you've got good momentum, then leave a job or at least consider leaving a job when you're up. Now, that sounds counterintuitive because you've just been promoted. Things are great. Why would you leave then? The reality is you need to be in a good place to leave a job so that your next job starts well. And if you disconnect and if you fall out of love with something and then you leave, you normally leave on a downer which normally means that when you start your next job a couple of weeks later or after, in you know, with a break in between, you normally start your next job in bad form or, or under par or just not in your perfect flow. And it's not the right way to do it. It's the tempting way to do it. But I think with hindsight, you leave a job when you're absolutely flying. And the other thing, of course, is that when, you, when you're in that moment, you make a brilliant decision because it takes something unbelievable to persuade you to leave yep. because – you're in a good place. If you're in a bad place, you make a bad decision. So confidence in is everything in a, in a sense, isn't it? Because it's it, if it, if you're confident, you know, it's like, it's like it's like sport. If you're confident in sport, you're 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 you'll do you'll be playing well. If you're not, 
you know, obviously it, you've got lots of talent, it helps, but it, confidence plays such a huge role in all of our lives, doesn't it? Confidence is a massive part of it, as it is, like to your point, as it is in every other walk of life. It's also very fragile. So you can be confident one moment and then it only takes one or two things to chip away at that. You can take you six months to build your confidence and in six days it can change. Um, but there's, but, but that's why I think a sense of timing becomes important. Do not, do not change jobs, which is a huge deal in your life when you're low in confidence, because you will start your new job low in confidence. So that sense of timing and not seeing change as a solution and a default would be the third lesson. Do you see many people do that though? Change jobs when things are absolutely flying? Yeah. And the reason I know that is that when I interview someone for a job, and they are clearly not in a great place or clearly they're a bit out of love with the industry or out of love with the job. They're the, they're the hires that you worry about. They're the ones that you'd be more reluctant to make. You can really need to make a hire and you can meet someone who on paper is perfectly qualified, but if the, if they're just not in a good place, then it's a worry because it means they probably won't join in a good place, which means you've only got to have a tricky first couple of weeks and it can really you know, causing problems. Yeah, yeah. So the people you kind of want to hire are the people who are very difficult to hire because they're so happy in their current roles, which yeah. makes the whole process much trickier. But if you know if you can persuade them, then you've got someone who's going to arrive in absolute top form. Brilliant. Mitch K, thanks so much for coming on this new In Hindsight series. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.